Welcome back to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I'm here today for a roundtable conversation and episode uh, on the topic of regenerative education. We often talk about environmental stewardship, social responsibility, resilience, and all things regeneration on this podcast. And so I'm super excited today to have um, three people on. That is Hope Peterson, uh, Catherine Fraze, and Philip Moore. Welcome, you three. Uh, well, I'd love to start with introductions just a little bit and set the context for education and, and you know, where in the world you you're you're sitting today and um yeah what what uh what work you you're creating in the world and and how that relates to regenerative education or education in a love-based sense hope why don't you start okay it's such a pleasure to be here in our little uh zoom screens i'm physically sitting in uh, a small town in quebec canada and i guess a good place to start would be I would say I'm a mother, first and foremost, a mother of two, and I've been a global nomad for my whole life, bouncing around the world, exploring, meeting people, and following my curiosity. And this has, being a mother, my curiosity, and decades of being an entrepreneur, both building my own businesses and other, and coaching other people to build their businesses, about 10 years ago, it struck me that there was really a lot of grown-ups who were feeling blocked and stuck, feeling like their, their education, their early lives were really stopping them from really following their curiosity, from being themselves, from really lighting up the world and seeing their vision, making an impact. And I also at the same time had two small children watching them be in the in the regular school system and seeing how outdated and how restrictive um, the education system was for our future generation. So I, I brought my experience with entrepreneurship, my global nomadism, my curiosity and being a mother. And I've started to blend all of these together. We can call it into a hope soup. Um, and I have been creating spaces for people to come together and talk about the future of learning, talk about future of entrepreneurship and innovation in a really diverse, hopeful um, and inspiring way. Um, I do this in a few different ways, and I would say I have the pleasure of having Phil and Catherine join me whenever they can. Um, I run a global brain trust which is basically an incredible community of innovators of all ages. We have young students, we have academics, we have researchers, we have ed tech, we have dreamers coming together in a regular uh, rhythm to sync up and put our finger on the pulse of what's happening and share and grow together. And uh, that's really enabled people to forge new partnerships see things they wouldn't otherwise in their own silos and break open and, and start to really discuss and explore new paradigms for the future of learning, regenerative or any model really. Um, and in other ways, I have had the fortune of syncing up and collaborating with individuals within this brain trust. So Phil and I are, are delivering an amazing program, um, his sacred summer this, this summer 
So I've been able to coach and mentor and support a lot of these individual businesses and people working in, in education, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Um, and I'll just end by saying what's bringing me the most hope in the future of education and regenerative practices is learning with younger people, watching my own kids have the, the freedom and flexibility to, to learn and grow in different ways and to learn with younger people. Um, I think we have so much to learn from them, with them, um, and it's giving me a lot of hope to start there, seeing these seedlings that already have so much potential and promise kind of come to life and remind the older generations um, of what's possible. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for that hope. And I, I want to hear more about that brain trust. Um, Catherine, how about you? You're in Montana today. Is that right? Right. Yes. I'm sitting right by the West Boulder River uh, in nature, surrounded by nature. And I just love hearing your story, Hope. You're so inspirational and it's great to see you too, um, Phil and, and Julian again. Um, so, gosh, where do I start? I spent my whole life uh, in education, starting out as a teacher and spending a long time in Montessori education before uh, spending uh, homeschooling my children, actually, and spending a lot of time in community with lots of different families and trying to help them solve their educational needs. And out of that, I created a, a 32,000 square foot makerspace for all these families to come together to co-create the education they needed to make sure that all their kids were being lit up with what they were doing um, on the ground. And then when COVID happened, uh, I decided I would see if I could recreate the magic of what we had on the ground at Workspace in, in the sky. So we created Workspace Sky, which was a big co-working space for teens. Um, and now we are creating ecosystems uh, for learning. So what that means is we're recreating innovation labs in different places. And then we are adding uh, lots of different learning hubs and field sites to the innovation center. So when the kids visit, they can not only be in a physical space with all these kids doing great activities, but then they can bop around the network visiting all these different field sites and uh, great learning places around. So I. I've also been um, participating in a regenerative school. Um, it's a school for human development uh, for the last three years. Uh, it's, it's the work of Carol Sanford, and uh, she wants to make sure that any kind of education model and or any anything that goes out of creating new structures, that they're regenerative, that they're restoring or uh, optimizing uh, society so that everyone can have a meaningful and fulfilling life. And, and go out in the world and fully express their essence. So I feel my role is to be a shepherd for anything that we're creating in education, that it is done using regenerative principles and making sure that everyone can fully and authentically express their essence in the world. Um, and that's what really lights me up. So that's me in a nutshell. Uh, Julian, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, Phil, you've been on the podcast a few times before. You're actually right now my, my neighbor. You're, you know, sitting in a different room, but just about five minutes down the road. Um, what, what context are you bringing into the conversation today, Phil? Um, knowing that you have a, a deep and vast knowledge on, you know, the embodied path of love-based education and just, you know, encouraging that essence, uniqueness and curiosity and I guess all beings, not just, not just, young, not just young beings. 
Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity to be here with these two beautiful women and you. And, um, and I'm inspired by them, you know, that I think that for me, the context would be that when I was in second grade, I was aware that something was wrong with education. And I think it's a, it's a soul thing. I think that my soul, perhaps in other bodies and other lives, found themselves sitting in a classroom going, wait a second, this is not right. This teacher should not be able to make fun of my friend Douglas because he stutters, you know? And so I just had that sense very early on. And my soul's code led me to the work of Buckminster Fuller. And um, I'm here in the Blue Ridge Mountains. This is where Buckminster Fuller, the year I was born in 1948, made the first geodesic dome, which fell down. So we call it the supine dome. And the next summer in 1949, it stayed. <laughs> and is now ubiquitous throughout the world and in every science fiction movie. And I, <clears throat> I'm uh, just here in the Blue Ridge Mountains for three years ever, after having created a community that we call a learning community, Upland Hills School, and Upland Hills Ecological Awareness Center. We're the two nonprofits on a farm called Upland Hills Farm <clears throat> next to a monastery. And so uh, it was an amazing uh, unfolding, the learning community experience. And it's thriving. And I had to figure out the part that was, how does somebody who has been a co-founder of a place find another place and leave so that the people who are there can really do the work that they need to do and, and experience their soul's code. So it's only been three years here, but during the time that I lived there, we were not just into regen, we were into gen, meaning that um, we were generating power from the wind <laughs> in 1973. It was just one of those things that we as young teachers wanted to show the kids that we were not just talking about doing something that was good for the future of our, our beautiful planet, that, that we would spend a lot of the teaching budget of that year on a wind generator. That wind generator is now an artifact, but it's influenced many children. And the thing that I love to say about loving well over a thousand children into being is that in this part of my life, in what I'm calling my rewirement, part three, I am still doing that soul's code because it's still in me. And its mission is to bring a love-based education to every child on the planet. And so that's the kind of thing that, you know, that you do um, until you drop this body. <laughs> and at present, as Hope said, I'm working with her and inspired to be um, bringing uh, to life and into uh and actualizing the material that was in the book called The Future of Children that I wrote in 2017. Yeah, brilliant. I, I love these introductions because there's you know so much uh, amazing work that all three of you are doing in the world. And I, I feel like a red thread um, that, that connects all of us. And you know, that is the, the inroad to you know, what follows in this conversation is is that you know we all come together in these kind of you know brain uh, hope you call it a brain trust or, or Phil you you call it these different stages of collaboration or rewirement in your life right and 
Catherine, you you talked about having a background in Montessori and, you know, we're now branching out into how can we use those modern times and these post-COVID times to come together both in space as well as, you know, digitally. And I think we're we're at a time now where it's really clear to some people, maybe even many people, that parts of the old system have just failed our humanity. And that humanity is what takes care of the planet and takes care of each other. And so what we all have in common is that um, we, we create these kind of brain trusts and these kind of circles of people that are actually enabling each other to fully step into, into leadership and into um, yeah, leading the way forward. And I, I'd love to hear, um, you know, just in, in whatever kind of popcorn style um, from who feels inspired from the three of you, like how that occurred in your life that you realized that what really makes the world go round is the, the people that gather and the, the, the way we come together. And maybe, maybe there's an anecdote or two that you can share for everyone listening in how to find um, not one's tribe in order to separate more into tribalism, but one's tribe to understand this is my cohort of people with whom I'm, I'm really able to live the change that I want to live and be, be the change that I came to be. How did that work for, for each of you? Well, um, for me, it really is being in that group and something that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh called the interbeing. When two people are together and, and connecting, as I've done with both of these amazing women and with you, Julian, there's this interbeing that's very alive. And if you get a bunch of people together, and when I say a bunch, our school is about 80 to 90 students, you know, ages four to 14. But just recently, we had a family reunion here this last week, and there were 60 people, and there were uh, six generations together. Whenever you do that with the intention of love is your north on your compass, and healing, because there's so much that needs to happen in order for us to be sane or coherent in an insane world. And what happens, and what happened just recently here at Highland Lake Cove, was that um, this, this family reunion turned into um, some kind of alchemy that helped everybody and touched everybody from the youngest member, three years old, to the oldest members somewhere in the 90s. And on that, when that happens, it regenerates you. So that's where the word comes back again, because then you just feel like, wow, this was so spectacular and so rare and so wonderful. Wouldn't it be great if others could also experience this? So whether you're Hope or whether you're Kath or whether you're you, Julian, I think that's what you do. You create initiatives and you make moves in what I call the infinite game, a game where there are no losers, a game where you play with the rules rather than by them, a game that you play in order to leave your legacy. And I think that's what connects all of us. I think every one of us is making a move and making moves consistent with the infinite game that we're playing. Mm. I think when I heard you say, when I first heard you introduce the infinite game, which would probably be about a year and a half ago, it struck me in my chest. Like I'd known it for my whole life, but I actually had never really heard it before. Um, and I think it gave a structure to something that felt so familiar and so human. And so thank you for, for introducing me uh, and so many people. Um, and I would, I would also 
resonate with the idea of when you love yourself and you really honor and, and really take the time and presence to love yourself, then that resonates out. And back to the regenerative, like when you build, you know, the, a strong foundation, you're able to then regenerate or offer that outwards. And I would say that would be a lesson I've learned of bringing people together when there's love in the picture, when you are loving yourself and modeling it for yourself first, then people will feel that and they're able to, especially young people, they're able to see that that's possible. I think there's a lot of disharmony, there's some dysfunction, there's, you know, there's ne negativity in the world as there always has been. But I think being a beacon of love and presence, um, especially for young people, uh, when we're thinking about the future of learning and the future of education, I think pulsing that out, it gravitates the right people, right, Julian? Like, I'm sure the more you are yourself, the more people come into your space um that resonate with who you are 100 percent. yes i'd like to um, chime in if i may um i've had a couple of experiences one as a teenager when i was reading a spiritual text and then one when i was at teachers college uh with a mentor that produced this like um spontaneous and deep internal sobbing that had sort of occurred in me and which i couldn't stop it was like this big emotional outpouring um and it gave me really strong signals that I was in alignment. And with these, uh, with the words I was reading that had this effect in me, um, these have stayed with me my whole life. So I, I imagine this must be some kind of soul awakening to, uh, to something, but they were usually uh, attributed to either a group or a person. And this happened when I was uh, experiencing something really so deep and meaningful that they've stayed with me my whole life and been a little bit of a north, north star for what I'm doing. So building that awareness uh, in, in humans and in young humans and the youth is really important to me. Like how, how can they learn to listen and observe themselves and how they're reacting to things? So they really sense their resonance and get a window into their soul. So they know what their life life's work is. I think that's really important. That will help them gravitate to the right people. I think. I love that. And I love all, all three of those perspectives. And you know, the, the wording infinite game, um, Phil, you definitely brought that into my life too, a few years ago. And it's, it's very close in my own inner compass to, you know, Catherine, what you just mentioned, like, life's work or life's purpose, right. And I feel like that's, that's a term that, you know, it, from a perspective of maybe separation, it's it's quite a, a big term and a very uh, external term of like, okay, so what's my what's my thing to do in the world, right? And um, I've noticed over the years that my moves in the game of life are different moves if I play the infinite game or if I play a confused game or a separated game or a game of uh, short-term gain or, or whatever it, it might be. And, you know, it, to me, increasingly... It becomes easier and easier based on the the cohorts of people, the groups of people, the the spaces that I say yes to in my life. But I also want to be very real. I think for a lot of people out in the world, it's it can be really difficult too if you're in in, in an environment of distraction or separation, or you're you're maybe not quite in that space yet where you know you have your your own group or your own cohort or your own uh, brain trust. 
um, what, what are what are some you know maybe not words of advice but like just some some pointers that that you all have for for people that are kind of halfway in between where it's like I experienced this and you know I, I do want to move more into connection but but it's it's also challenging right Well, from my own personal experience on the ground, um, when I was when I started Workspace, I was trying to find other people doing similar education models. And the way that I found my education people was to go to conferences and just go to the the sessions that I thought were most meaningful and the most in line with my personal educational philosophy. And what I found was that the same people would show up at the same <laughs> the same sessions from conference to conference. They were, I, I kept on bumping into the same people <laughs> and exactly. they, you know, over time, just like, okay, these are my people. And then they introduced me to the people that weren't quite there in the circle. And, you know, that some of the people I'm working with today, you know, when I first met them six years ago, we're, we're still very tight from these very first sessions that we, where we, we first got together. So, um, that was my strategy. I, um, I would say that actually Phil and Kath have been amazing beacons for humans that um, that give constantly to other people and without any specific regard to what's coming back directly. Um, I think that would be one piece, not of, of advice, but something that I would share with someone who's confused or not sure how to build connections or what the next step could be is find people who inspire you and find a way to to give to support to lend a hand um, or even just to have a conversation um, because to give without regard to like i want money or i want this but really just to give and and to explore further of why that person's fascinating you or inspiring you um, can create a really beautiful connection, which usually snowballs and momentum grows and you might meet their friends or their people. And, and I would say that happened to, to both Kath and Phil and myself, as soon as I tapped into their portal, offering to give or they were giving worlds opened up. Um, it was amazing. Yeah, those are, <clears throat> I agree with both of those. And I, I think that there's sometimes this idea of intention where you think you have to come up with the intention and then you follow that intention and then <clears throat> some things, magical things occur when that happens. I think sometimes intention is looking for you, that there's some great soul mystery at work that's looking for you. And if you are prepared to fall in love. So I guess my advice would be live with an open heart. You know, Bucky said very simply, dare to be naive. You know, if, if you prepare to fall in love and you can't really, you can't prepare, but if you're, if that's natural to you, you meet somebody and your heart just goes out and you realize, wow, I love this person. I certainly can say about the three of you, that's how it was for me. Now, you don't say I'm in love with you and you don't say I'm, I just fell in love with you. But what, what happens is you're feeling that aliveness and that aliveness is really, is using you. You know, it's, in, it's coming through you. That aliveness is really the universe pulsing through you, living you. 
And uh, I, I, I think it's not the kind of advice that you follow. It's just knowing that falling in love leads to the, is what the great mystery wants for all of us. As a species, maybe that's what Jean Houston is speaking of when she says future humans, you know, become a future human, you know, and in doing that, you just will attract to you these other people who've been waiting and in some cases for a long time and sometimes so close that they just can't can't allow themselves to open but the miracle of this last um retreat here with my family is i've saw i saw someone who i love very much and i've known since i was uh, 13 years old and i saw anxiety melt and love take its place and I just was like blown away by that. I said, I would have never guessed that that would have been possible. And who knows how long it'll be sustained, but falling in love. That's beautiful. I'm, I'm so glad and honored, Phil, that I was uh, you know, able to uh, be, be part of a dinner of that family retreat and reunion that you just described. And I think a very, very, uh, yeah, a very important part to, to add to that is that there's a magic in spaces where there is an intergenerational exchange, right? Where there's kids of all ages and then there's adults of all ages. And you just realize that just in the non-spoken space, in the non-verbal space, there's a lot of information going around that kind of, yeah, balances out our nervous systems maybe, or just allows people to melt that anxiety and, and, and remember that like, yeah, family is, you know, it's this, this sounds, well, maybe it's like almost a, a goal for, for many of us is like family is the origination of love and that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. And so to come together in this unique way that, that you all did as, you know, the, the big Moore family, as I call it in my mind, it was very, very powerful, important to, to watch. And then to be invited to be part of for a little bit, that was, that's very exciting. And I want to find the segue here to, to the, the topic of nature and the world and sustainability and all of that, because I think you know, very often the very linear masculine side of our brain is, is, is all about, well, what do we need to fix to change the world? And really the, the red thread is, is, well, let's fall in love with nature again. Let's, let's fall in love with the world we live in, right? Because that, that's actually the common language that I think all living beings share is the, the feeling of being alive is ultimately a connection. And that connection is, is a connection of love, not in a romantic sense. You said that really well, Phil. And so I'm, I'm curious, Phil, I know from you that in, in the Ecological Awareness Center and, and school Upland Hills, you, you, you were, you know, really, really clear that nature was always the primary teacher. Um, how does that relate to the work Hope and Catherine, you both do, especially in a digital space? Like how, how easy is it to understand that about someone else through the screen, that that person is actually fundamentally also in love with nature and that's why we're meeting and the nature in themselves, you know? Oh, that's a great question. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it's something we're on on Zoom rather a lot, or at least I am. And and we're here right now too. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm looking at your background. I do look at people's backgrounds, um, but I do my best to, as Phil was talking about the interbeing. I, I try to feel in as much as I can to the humans, the energy, I think we can definitely feel the energy through this technology. 
Um, and I, I try my best also to, in whatever orchestration or group or one-on-one, -on -one, um, make it as interactive as possible. Remind us that, you know, I can see you and we, we can interact. And it's, I think I'm a bit against formalities. And so I try to play when we're online. Sometimes I come on with wigs. Sometimes I, you know, try and encourage people to laugh and giggle and connect and cry and um, have these really human intimate moments. Um, and then obviously I try to get out into nature myself so that I'm, I'm seeding that. Um, what about you, Kath? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh... So yes, we are in a digital world, but we're not there all the time. So, you know, I really feel like it's a, it's a question of balance. We want the human connection and, you know, some people are very isolated. So to be able to pull them into a space and give them opportunities to actually interact with people that they wouldn't normally interact with on a day-to-day -day basis, I think is, is really important. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, you might get Lyme disease, for example, and you might be in hospital for three months. Wouldn't it be great if we could keep an interactive virtual uh, physical space going so that you know they don't miss a beat um, and can still connect with their friends um, and as far as creating relationships you know I obviously it's better in person there's, there's the mojo that happens when you're with people but there's also mojo I've discovered in online spaces um, and just yesterday I was asked to to install a memorial tree for someone who had passed away in one of our school communities inside the virtual space where they're going to gather their whole community around the tree and then walk past the tree. And I was thinking, wow, that's kind of a milestone, right? Like this is a gathering to find meaning and making a memorial for someone and they're going to be reminded of that. So, you know, you know, I don't think that children should be on screens all the time, um, but I think it has a use as a tool. And as long as it's not, you know, for a big percentage of the day and that they're moving around in the virtual space as well as moving around outside and, and having that variety and novelty, then I think it can be an addition, an addition to what they're currently doing, but definitely not a full alternative. Phil, do you have anything to add about the digital space? Well, it's, a, it's amazing how powerful the digital space can be. And it does things, you know, that nothing else can. You know? And so um, actually, when I first met Kat, she introduced me to something that I didn't know was a possibility until she did. And then I saw its uh, utility and value right away, especially because um, she was using it at that time and perhaps still is to help people in Ukraine to find each other who were refugees and to come together in a safe place and to be able to be teenagers or to be able to be themselves and the icons and could turn into to actual conversations. And then I was just, of course, thinking about, well, it's, there's an infinite potential for the tools that we have made. If we use them in a wise way and we curate those with love as the North Star, I was like, wow, that's an amazing thing to be able to do. Bombs are going off, I can't go outside, but if I have a signal and I can communicate with somebody and have this moment that really transcends space and time, then, oh my gosh, it just felt like that would be a beautiful way of using this technology. So, um, you know, Bucky was very much into de designing tools and he felt that you could reform 
the environment easier than you can reform the individual. And so if you bank a turn where there's lots and lots of accidents and rather than put signs and flashing lights on it and you just make it so that when you turn, you actually, your car goes that way. I mean, that was an example that he gave of, you know, um, you, you, you redesign the environment. If you teach as we did in a geodesic dome for most of your teaching career, you're really living in a spherical world, which is our sun, our moon, you know, the earth, you know, you, you, you really see that you can, it, it affects you enormously, far more than you would, you would guess to not be in a rectangle and to be in a sphere or to always see the triangles of the dome, you start looking for them everywhere else. You see something framed right outside of your your house right now, Julian, and you see that if there were no triangles, that would not stand. <laughs> and you begin to understand, oh, this is how nature coordinates herself. And you go into a store here and you see a perfect octahedron and you say, what's that? Well, that's fluorite. And that's how, and then you begin to see, oh, this is the natural world. Everywhere you look, you begin to see that there's this pattern that connects us all. And so that's all I have to say about this. I, I do love it. I mean, there, you know, there's a light bulb that instantly goes off when you say that spaces, um, you know, impact us much more than we might think, especially rectangular spaces. Uh, I went to a public school in, in, in Germany um, and then worked in a Waldorf school, a Steiner school later on for, for a year. And I remember one of the first things I learned about Steiner's approach was that he insisted on children uh, learning in any in any space but rectangular spaces, basically, because rectangular spaces are so linear that they our mind then mirrors the linearity rather than being kind of enamored right by the shapes and sizes and forms around us that allow us to basically uh, connect our imagination and connect to the physical space around us. It it does have a huge impact on my mood, and you know that's one of the reasons why I ask about the digital space more so because I believe that. It is just a tool and it is totally uh, possible to use these tools in a benevolent way, just like many other tools. And I know that a lot of people experience this nowadays where it's almost paradoxical. We're talking about uh, education in a love-based way or we're talking about regeneration and falling in love with nature and, and, and acting from that inspiration. And yet here I am looking into that rectangle that is my MacBook, right? And so... I have a follow-up question, and that's about AI and the idea of artificial intelligence. And, you know, it's the, the middle of 2023 as we're recording this. And I guess without needing to be experts on the topic, what, what do you all feel are some of the very unique possibilities for the space of education and maybe even lifelong, you know, education and inspiration that can happen through AI. And and what do you individually see as maybe a threat or two where, you know, and, and I'm happy to share too, but something where you're like, I am just not sure if this is going to be good for us. I'd love to hear some, some, some honest thoughts on AI here. Um, I, I would, I would say that I've had the honor of having a number of people in my brain trust share or deliver 
their opinion or their expertise, newly found expertise or tools using AI um, as a way to learn myself and expose to different perspectives, but also to put it out there and see how people respond. And my favorite was, uh, you know what I'm gonna say, Catherine, <laughs> was, was a, a session with a 12 year old who is now going across the US his father's helping him set it up, but he really is the primary lead on this uh, approach to teaching people and their later generations about how to use AI, how to approach it, how to consider it. Um, he spends a considerable amount of time um, learning about what's happening because the space in AI is evolving literally every day. And what I loved about him was he was, he was quite matter of fact. And the, the metaphors he used, he said, you know, it's happening, it's here. And we may as well get comfortable to use it, to understand it, to not be threatened by it. And when you, you approach new technology like that, this is spoken from a 12 year old to a room of educators who all had their various you know, concerns and fears and, um, and perspectives. And he said, how many of you are, who are feeling very scared about, about AI have been using it? and very few people put their hand up. And I think so often we can get in a mentality, especially as grown-ups in our squares, in our linear thinking of like, this is the way new technology is coming and it's gonna be threatening and it's gonna take away all the jobs. And here was a 12 year old putting his hand up saying, uh, I highly recommend before you really state how it's going to be is to start familiarizing and seeing how you might be able to weave it into your life and then he gave lots of, of examples so um i guess for me i am exploring it with a beginner's mind i want to be naive but i also it's a technology that will shift things considerably i feel um yeah i i am i'm open and i'm exploring I love AI. I use it all the time and I just see so much value in it, in, in being able to draw out the inner thoughts and in the soul of each child by giving them these tools where they can actually authentically and fully express themselves. Like, for example, if they can't draw, but they really have an idea and they want to get that picture out into the world, you know, they can learn mid-journey and generate and keep regenerating ideas until they can get something that's really honed into exactly what they have in them in their mind which i think is very powerful especially for young children um and the same with writing you know i str i struggled uh you know in my early life with writing um and now i can just do speech to text get all my thoughts on paper give it to chat gpt and get it transformed into into a really beautiful structure that sounds good and is you know and i can change it into anything so you know there's a lot of kids that have a blockage in writing we can remove these these blockages by giving them a set of tools and it will help them uh, gain intellectual confidence and just confidence in general in themselves and i think that's a huge step in helping them develop their agency in the world and to become self-determined so for, for me you know i couldn't be more excited I mean, I know there's fears and I think there, you know, with any new technology, there's always going to be a lot of fear out there. But, um, you know, I think as humans, we just need to shepherd, shepherd the, the use of it. And I think those things will happen just like seatbelts happened over time. And I'm actually very optimistic. But um, where it touches my heart is the 
the impact it can have on on those learners who struggle to get you know their soul out into the world in their essence so i feel good about it <laughs> well i would say i'm one who has not used it very much you know so i i know very little about its uses <clears throat> and um and thanks to hope i've been exposed to it through the hope uh, brain trust and so that's been very helpful and then i was on a panel with a guy who is in has a company and it was all AI and the conference I was at was happening because of the amount of money that came from his company. And so I got to interact with him and hear what he had to say about education. So I would first say um, what we don't know, we don't know is the largest domain. And what we know, we know is the smallest domain. But from an educator's perspective, I would say that um, if uh, if all children were really given the same kind of, of love and care that we were able to do at the school for right hemisphere dominant human beings, it would be a different world. And that would be the actual creating of art, you know, all of the creative and performing arts and all of the things that are, are just so special, like uh, theater and live theater and writing plays and musicals and all of that kind of thing. If AI can take care of some of the things that we spent so much time breaking the spirit of children, how much can you memorize, you know? Mm -hmm. And how, and how, how can you, how can you communicate only with words and only with punctuation. I mean, these things have literally crippled millions and, and millions of, of human beings, especially the way that we taught them. And then I thought, well, what about memory? What if we don't need to have to really remember anything? And then I thought, well, what do I love to memorize? that takes time and I really have to put effort into it rather than saying, you remember this, <laughs> I'm not going to, you know? And then I realized that when I hear an amazing song, you know, as, as somebody that's always loved music and, and then I hear the lyrics of a Leonard Cohen song and I think, oh, I want to embody that song, then I'll spend hours upon hours memorizing the song so it's just second nature to me and I can feel the vibrations within. I would love to imagine a time when all of that stuff that we've crippled children with is gone and people feel really confident about being able to write anything by way of what you were talking about, Kath, or by doing some of the research or by finding more things out in the research than they could find out on their own. And instead of memory being about, you know, regurgitating the so-called right answers of a test, you know, then memory would be the thing we're passionate about. Because when we're passionate about something, memory is really important. And I'm glad I'm not reading a screen when I'm singing a song. Because when I'm singing a song, I don't want to be reading a screen. I want to be feeling those words. There's a blaze of light in every word. That's a part of a Leonard Cohen song. I want to feel that, you know, and I want to feel it in the same melody, only I want to change it a little bit, or I want to put this emphasis, you see. So I think that there is a way of thinking about AI that could be liberating. 
and that could that could curb and and maybe even halt and stop the uh, the cruelty that our educational system says two lines of education mathematics and logic language the other ones forget about them you know I think that's one of the cruelest things that is still going on in most schools yeah I love the optimism here okay can I say one more thing oh go ahead go ahead hope yeah I was just going to say that um, in listening to you, Phil, um, again, referring to this 12-year-old Kaz, and he talked about trust, which I thought was is a very poignant word and feeling and emotion um, and very relevant right now. I think there's a lot of people who are very distrustful of what's going to happen, what's happening with AI, and is it going to be faking and doing all of these things that we won't know who to trust? And he was focusing on um, this is a tool that if you trust kids to use it, to dive deep into their passion and their interests, like you're talking about, Phil, like having this amazing, capacious access to information and being able to dive deep and learn how to pull it out as opposed to, you know, memorizing and regurgitating. He's like, if you trust kids to do that, they're going to learn in totally different ways and they'll be catapulted and the educators were kind of sitting dumbfounded because many of them had said we need to not let them use it because it's dangerous and what what if they look up stuff what if they cheat what if they cheat and the 12 year old was like they're gonna cheat they're gonna find other ways to cheat so take it off the table and trust them and i just thought that was so cool i needed to share it i love it yeah i know and, and this is this is a really really beautiful conversation about specifically the tool of AI right now. I, you know, I, I personally also agree that it's a tool. And so with any tool, uh, we, we can learn and choose to use it wisely and use it for good things. And some people might not do that, but then the question is, should we, um, all stay in fear and all stay in this, uh, place of let's create a restrictive society around the worst cases of fear or, or is the other side of it, to liberate uh, so many and, and in a way of, um, you know, providing trust and providing the means to, to access tools that can ultimately like really change uh, our maybe multilateral expression also, you know, that's a clear theme you all three of you touched on. And it's, you know, to be determined, I think it will for sure um, bring up some things like a mirror to us humans, how we operate, right? So you just mentioned the 12 year old saying, well, kids will cheat in exams. Like, yeah, that, that is true. And most of us did. And those who didn't at least knew someone who did. And so I think it's, it's not so much about trying to restrict as much as to understand. Uh, yeah. Maybe also where enough is enough. I think the, the AI will definitely show us that there is a lot of fake content out there in the world. And, and maybe some newspapers were all along fake, or maybe some people who run the world are all along, not only positively intentioned, and we might be able to see this more than ever before, but it shouldn't stop us. I guess I, I totally land on the same optimism. It shouldn't stop us to really embrace tools. And, um, but it also might force schools to start thinking about, uh, you know, teaching kids to develop their own epistemologies about how do they know what they know, right? Yeah. And and that becomes a priority because the information is there and accessible, right? So it really becomes a matter of how. <laughs> and also right, relationships become a priority. Like if you, if you don't know the student, you don't know if he's cheated really 